Today's TribCast is presented by The Witty Museum. Portraits of Courage, now open at The Witty Museum. For more information, visit wittymuseum.org. And NRG Energy. At NRG, we're changing the way people think about and use energy. More at nrg.com. Texas Talking Out. What was that that you said? Texas Talking Out. Gonna hoop upside your head. Texas Talking Out. Tell me who can you trust when Texas Guys are Texas Guys I'm State Representative Carol Alvarado, and I'm looking for a date. I'm also a candidate for the State Senate and in need of a special election date. If you hear one, send it my way. In the meantime, enjoy this week's TribCast. And now, here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, August 14th with your Texas Tribune TribCast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Hello. Civil Courts and Breaking News reporter Emma Platoff. Hi there. And our Health and Human Services reporter Marissa Evans. Hi, y'all. We will be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so please go ahead and start sending them our way. Uh, Marissa, you have been uh, reporting at length on some pretty gross things. <laughs> That's my clinical <laughs> nice, definition. Nice <laughs> <laughs> it's just wow. like that could be anything. Uh, most recently, you wrote a really impactful piece on a mold infestation in a, a major state health building, and it prompted state health officials to evacuate the building and relocate all the employees. Um, last week, someone slipped you a recording of an all-staff meeting. You don't have to tell us who slipped you the recording. Uh, But what did you learn on that recording? Well, we learned that Commissioner John Hellerstedt of DSHS thinks that the building was unsustainable. It was nasty. It was disgusting, but it was not unsafe. Um, And that when I was, even when I was listening to that on my own, I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. (laughs) Yeah. You're not going to have a bunch of state health (laughs) officials saying basically no problem here. Nothing to see here. Right. Well, I mean, how do you reconcile you, this line, like you were never in danger with the, them saying, basically, we're moving you all out of the building right away. Yeah, nothing's wrong here. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's where a lot of the tension, even after the meeting from the state workers I talked to, that's where a lot of the tension lied. It's like, well, if it wasn't unsafe, then why did you move us? And if it wasn't unsafe, why can't we go get our stuff back? Because a lot of workers have not gotten their stuff back. The, all the stuff. Oh, so they, this was leave and leave your stuff, just yes, walk out of the building. Exactly. Jeez. It's exactly. like when a, it's like plane crash. Exactly. It's like, don't try to grab your belongings. Exactly. Like just leave the building yep. as fast as but, possible. But my right. IPad. Uh, right. Right. <laughs> They're going to come back and all their stuff exactly. is going to be covered in mold. Exactly. But potentially, actually that happened. Someone's shoes had mold on it. That's how humid the office was. So, I mean, I am a little bit like how much how much danger were they really in? Okay, because mold, you know, we live in Austin, Texas. Like, basically all of us are infested with mold in some way, shape, or form. Were Speak they? Speak for yourself. <laughs> this, sounds like the, this sounds like the beginning of the Western coal miners story. You know, everybody's used to the mines. Right. And that else isn't really that bad. I will say, this is like the allergy capital of America. Well, so, so that's, I think that's like where the tension also is, too, because... I mean, DSHS brought in not only the commissioner, they brought in, who's who's a doctor. They also brought in their medical director. I mean, they brought in, like, some pretty... Heavyweights. Yeah, the, the heavyweights in they terms of Texas. They are heavyweights. They're, they're health professionals. Yeah, well, yeah, but the heavyweights of the agency were brought in to really kind of assure people. And from outside looking, okay, that's good that they did that. But to have you, these doctors 
smart people saying, you know, you actually weren't in any danger and mold is everywhere. I mean, that was said throughout the entire hour and a half session town hall. It's like mold is everywhere, you know, y'all weren't in danger. But, you know, you have people in there who actually do have real mold allergies who really do feel as if they were in danger. Well, the essential question is still there. If it's not a danger, why move everybody out? Uh, did right. they move everybody out because they got shamed by the Texas Tribune? Or did they move everybody out? I mean, it, clearly they weren't about to move everybody out before the Tribune wrote about it's this. It's not health, it's embarrassment. Right. I mean, I'm, that's right. the question I'm asking. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I from my sources at, at DSHS, they have made it explicitly clear it was not the Tribune story that triggered the move. Just poor timing Just on their part. coincidence. <laughs> very high coincidence, coincidence on their Coincidence, not causation. <laughs> right. <doesn't>, right. <laughs> but I, I think part of the issue is, you know, again, what triggered the move. So, um, Hellerstedt said, you know, we didn't have a place for y'all to go. You know, we had to move 100-some people out of this building. We couldn't just send you anywhere. And that's a viable concern. You know, you can't say we're going to move you and you don't have a plan of where you're going to move people. But I think for the state workers... Work from home sounds pretty nice. Well, the work from home issue is a whole other issue as well because not everybody has the clearance to work from home. So they're... Oh, right. interesting. And so there are a lot of people who maybe would prefer to work from home rather than a mold-infested building, but... If you don't have a laptop, if you don't have, like, the, the right... <laughs> would you rather work from home, A, or would you rather work in a mold-infested building, well, Or, but see, if you don't have the clearance to, like, be taking home all this, you know, right. high-risk high or high-profile data or, you know, I mean, these are people who are, you know, deeply responsible for a right. lot of the state's health records. Right. Um, so Ross had this great column earlier this week where he asked a really important question, that is... If the state's health agencies have been willing, until found out, to let their own employees work in squalor, should the rest of us be asking more questions about how they're watching out for us? What's the answer, Ross? Well, you know, we got, you know, Marissa and I have both been mm -hmm. getting a lot of email and mm -hmm. a lot of uh, messages from state employees, you know, that all start with, you know, hey, don't name me, but. <laughs> right. And I had you know, one show up on my own doorstep at home yeah. in Austin, Texas. It's, you know, mm -hmm. it's 636 is not the only building mm -hmm. here that is in trouble at that facility. In fact, the Brown-Heatley building mm -hmm. that the Health and Human Services Commission rats. is in. Rats. Right. And all right. kinds of stuff. Um, and uh, I think in, in response to an earlier inquiry you made, people were sending in, somebody sent in a video of either oh, a worms. very, very fast worm or a very, very small snake. <laughs> there was a we confirmed worm. it was definitely a snake. Okay, we're going with, we're going with a baby snake, snake instead of very fast. I, I kind of like <laughs> I, I, I've been calling a worm but, snake. I just uh, <laughs> appease everybody. Yeah. So. <laughs> and we had uh, three or four notes um, mm -hmm. after the column about uh, rats at the hobby building mm -hmm. um, on the seventh floor and I think Ooh. on the fifth floor mm -hmm. in the ceiling dying in the walls, oh my God. Mm -hmm. running across the halls, yep. uh, leaving um, evidence of themselves on people's desks. You know, it's, it's disgusting. And, and the question that I had really was, you know, partly about the health department. You know, if you're going to let this go on and you're supposed to be watching public health, what the heck is that about? And in a broader sense, if the government's not taking care of things like the buildings that they work in, what else are they missing? You know, this, is this is this just a one-off, or is this um, an indication of you know how they how they treat other things? You know that it, mm -hmm. you let the details slip away, you let a lot slip away. But who is at fault? Because it's easy to put a commissioner on stage right. at a town hall meeting and you know make it look like you know he is or isn't taking care of his folks. But like the legislature isn't exactly handing out cash to repair right. and update these buildings. The, I mean. 
they talked about it. You right. Know, they talked about it. Uh, there was like a mention of that. Um, <laughs> a mention. <laughs> it was. It was a mention. I mean, is this the facilities commission? Is it, this it, the? It's, like a, it's actually a combination of people at fault here. It's it's the legislature in terms of not giving funding for maintenance and or and also not giving enough funding to TFC to handle the maintenance issues that they're supposed to be handling. So it's hard to really. I mean, you can still blame an agency for not handling things like mold and rats, but if they had to keep contracting out, spending money out of their already tight budgets to actually fix problems that need to be fixed, then, you know, this is the type of stuff that happens. You know, that's just what happens in this. There was an effort early last session, Jane Nelson, the chairwoman of the Senate Finance Committee, had a list of fixes to, um, in particular, it was uh, state schools and state hospitals, the old, all those old facilities, and what it would cost to bring them up to current building code. And, you know, the, I don't remember the exact number, but it was billions of dollars. Right. And, you know, she had a very ambitious plan for initially for getting into the state's rainy day fund, and maybe because this was a one-time expense, fixing these things up and getting them up to code. Um, they weren't able to do that exactly, and they weren't able to do much more than scratch at this. Right. But, you know, the legislature knows at the highest levels of the legislature that they've got these long-term maintenance problems that they themselves created with low budgeting and that they've, it's going to be very, very expensive to fix now. Mm. We have a, a, a sarcastic question coming in from Candace on social media. Why would we fix state health building issues when we need more money for tax breaks? Mold is a cost-effective building material that adds character to our buildings and government employees. She said character. Well, that's from the biology department <laughs> at UT. What's the... <laughs> right. She said character. Uh, Ross, I mean, you called this in your column the brown M&M problem. Please explain. Well, there's this, there's this famous story that, you know, I love as a business parable that the rock band Van Halen had, you know, what sounded like, uh, you know, imperial rock and roll thing where they said, you know, when you're preparing for us, have these drinks and also have M&Ms on hand, but take out all the brown ones. And everybody thought, oh my God, these indulgent rock and rollers. And really it was in there because they were in the middle of a tour in the early 80s that involved a very intricate and complicated lighting show and sound show and stage show. And they wanted to make sure that the local people setting everything up were minding the details because it was dangerous if they didn't and screw up the show. So they put this clause in their contracts that said, take all the brown M&Ms out of the M&Ms because they knew if they walked into the room and the brown M&Ms had not been removed, some detail in this big show had been screwed up. And, and the way this compares to this is if you're not watching the details on something that seems to be unimportant, are you watching the details on anything else? Yeah. Well, before our next topic, I'd like to thank another TribCast sponsor, Brown M&M's. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Actually. Outstanding. Where's our jar? Yeah. AARP Texas. Assisted living facilities left residents adrift during Hurricane Harvey. State leaders, assisted living facility operators, and the public should learn the lessons of Hurricane Harvey to avoid making the same mistakes. Read more on TribTalk.org. All right, uh, Emma, I want to go back to something we've talked about in previous weeks, and that's this big question of how families separated at the border are being reunited, particularly when many of those parents have already been deported. Um, so weeks ago, a federal judge ordered immigration officials to issue a plan for reuniting kids with already deported parents. What has happened since? 
Well, they missed that deadline. Another. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I feel like this is a repeat of a previous Tribcast. Yeah. Yeah. And they missed another deadline. Yeah. Yeah. This is just, just a walk in the park right now. <laughs> yep. But uh, several hours after that deadline passed, the second deadline missed on this uh, part particular task they'd been given by a federal judge. The government submits a plan for reuniting kids with parents who've been deported. That number is several hundred, it's about 400 um, kids whose parents are in other countries. The biggest critique of that plan so far is that it puts a lot of the onus on the American Civil Liberties Union and on other sort of nonprofit and advocacy groups that have stepped in to try to help these families. The other important note from that is just that, you know, this is an incredible catastrophic challenge for the federal government. They had a status report that showed that over a week they'd reunited just 13 families who were in this situation with the parents already deported. And it's just it's out of like 560 nightmare. or something, right? Like yeah. a rate of 13 reunifications a week when you have 560 some odd kids. Right. We can do that math. So, I mean, it's going to be slow. Going. I'm, I'm not I'm not, I'm not offering, <laughs> but like. A fleet of investigative journalists could do that mm -hmm. faster. <laughs> uh, so, but in, in light of this question of not offering, how is it possible that the ACLU, which is not a government entity, is getting stuck with doing this? I mean, who's, like, uh, isn't this the federal government's responsibility? They separated them. They did separate them, and the ACLU has made that point. They say, you know, the ultimate burden for this is on the federal government. But I think they also recognize that if they want this job to get done in the fastest way possible, that the ACLU and their sort of network of advocacy groups may be the fastest way to do it. And so we're seeing a lot of collaboration between the two entities. Are they and getting paid? Yeah, if you're fumbling around for a competent help, you're not going to go to the federal government on this one. They already screwed it up. Right, but who's getting paid to do this? I mean, as the federal government doesn't have like a contract with the ACLU, I can't imagine. This is an issue that people across the country are worried about. I think this is a, the kind of issue that people are donating to the ACLU over. But, yeah, I mean, the federal government is not paying them to help track down these parents. Well, also, like, what happens if the, the nonprofits screw up a reunification? Like, right. how does that work? I mean, where are the fail-safes here? It's not clear yet. You know, this, this plan, which was two weeks overdue, is just sort of starting to go into effect, mm -hmm. and we haven't really seen the record yet of how it'll shake out. So the Justice Department has also said that parents of 163 children, quote, indicated desire against reunification. What does that even mean, and are there questions around that sort of status? Yeah, so nonprofit groups, again, like the ACLU, are raising a lot of questions about that number. That number of parents who the government says waived their right to see their children again has changed a lot over the last several weeks. It was as high as 200. It was under 100. It's around 130 now. The ACLU says these parents were confused, and there's been sworn affidavits, testimony filed in this federal court case saying, I didn't know what I was signing. It, it wasn't in my native language. I want to see my child. Even if it means we have to be deported together, I want to see my child again. I can't really imagine very many parents who would want to, who would desire right. against reunification in some capacity. I mean, that, well, unless, I mean, you know, there unless, are there are a few cases here probably where you might look at it and say, you know, my kid's better off. With their grandma. They're away yeah. from me than they would be back in whatever we were running from in the first place. That's true. That's right. true. Honduras has the highest youth murder rate in the world. Oh, um, you know, God. for some parents, it is better to say goodbye forever. But as you can imagine, it's a difficult decision. Um, and meanwhile, there were reports the week before last that a migrant child had died after leaving an immigration and customs enforcement facility near Dillon. Texas, a lot of like mixed reports. What do, is there anything we know for certain about this case? 
we, what we know for certain is that two Texas state agencies are investigating the facility. So this is an ICE facility. It's federal immigration enforcement. But when there are reports of, you know, concerning events like this, the state has certain rights to go in and investigate. So we know that Texas is looking into it. The family of the child who reportedly died and the reporters representing that family have been pretty quiet about the details. The state initially said, you know, we'd love to investigate this, but we don't know the name of the kid. We don't know his age, her age. We don't know the gender. So now the state has that information, but the public still does not. It's a federally run facility or a federal contractor? A federally run facility. So it's it's an ICE detention account. facility. All right. All right. Yeah. And the allegation is that the child died shortly after leaving the facility, but due to unsanitary conditions there. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. Uh, well, Ross, pivoting to you for a minute, we uh, have seen some back and forth between Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke about who would have TV ads and when and where and whether they'd be negative or positive. This is going to be such a great race. I mean, it already <laughs> is such a great race. But, it, you know, I mean, this is a great, you know, political combat, you know, at the top of the ticket. It's just it's just a blast to watch. Well, what have we seen? What are we watching so far? Is there anything to, <laughs> so to actually had, watch on so TV? So we had the episode where Cruz came out with a positive ad that he revealed to the media and three not-so-positive ads that he didn't reveal. Patrick Svitek ferreted them out. Uh, they were being tested in some smaller markets around the state, presumably to find one that will work, you know, in a statewide campaign and, you know, stop here for a second. Both the O'Rourke and Cruz campaigns have plenty of money to run statewide TV uh, frequently enough that we'll all see everything. Right. right? So, so if we watch there. TV. So they, so they pop out these negative ads and, and there's a lot of press and attention around that, which, you know, probably serves Cruz pretty well because you're getting free media for your ads. And it also apparently helps, um, Beto O'Rourke raised, I think it was $1.3 million. Yes, money he said he was sending right back into TV right, advertising. To, to counter right. with ads of his own. He's doing a lot of social media. He's doing a lot of radio, as it turns out, which is interesting. And he's also got this TV campaign. He's doing um, positive ads, uh, not attack ads yet. But it's an answer to the Cruz ad, and it uses the Cruz ads to some extent as a foil and says, well, he's doing this, I'm doing this. And, you know, it's the Beto O'Rourke story. The race here, the bigger thing going on here is that um, most Texas voters know who Ted Cruz is. They've formed an opinion about him. They like him or they don't like him. They're sort of set. And his job is to get voters out on his side and hope that Beto's don't show up. Beto's job is different. People don't know who he is. Um, he's never been elected in 35 of the 36 congressional districts. And he and Cruz are racing to make a first impression of Beto O'Rourke. Cruz trying to make a negative impression O'Rourke trying to make a positive one, and we're seeing it playing on our TV screen. So is it a surprise that we're seeing O'Rourke on TV? Because he has previously suggested he didn't think TV was a particularly effective place to advertise. He's been a pretty prolific Facebook liver. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think maybe to Ross's point, you know, this is better O'Rourke saying I really need to introduce myself to everyone in the state, right. not just mostly the millennials who watch my Facebook Live videos and are sort of keeping up with my campaign on social media. Do those right. kids even vote? <laughs> they hope. <laughs> they hope, right. And uh, who, oh, I know that Cruz has a super PAC that's spending on his behalf in the TV advertising universe. Uh, obviously, Beto O'Rourke has still said, and st I, if I'm not incorrect, stuck to not taking super PAC money, right? Right, and not wanting super PACs to come in on their own. And play you know, on his behalf, I, right. I, I think, you know, we're going to have a, a, this is just a total guess on my part, but I, I think we're probably going to have a moment in this race when someone who is friendly to O'Rourke but not working with him or saying they're not working with him comes in and tries to lay a bunch of money into this race, you know, against Cruz or for O'Rourke. Um, you know, I just expect that to be one of the components of this. 
But at the end of this, you know, it would be pretty normal if Cruz and the PACs that are supporting Cruz outspend O'Rourke and whoever else is with him, you know, one and a half or two to one. This is an incredibly expensive state to advertise in from a TV standpoint, right? Yeah, and it's why a lot of the, you know, if you're in the political business and you're trying to win a Senate seat, you first look at, you know, a list of winnable seats, and then you look at what's the win most winnable seat in the smallest, cheapest state, because a senator from North Dakota is a lot easier to um, finance than a senator from Texas. Well, it's fun. Vivian is asking on social media, will Ted Cruz agree to a debate on public education? I don't know the answer to that in his list of debates. He's put out a list of uh, debates on five subjects, and of course I don't have them at hand, but... Um, we'll look it up for you, Patsy. Yeah, what he's, what he's said is... Oh, you know, that was Vivian. Yep. The, these, these five subjects, these five dates, um, you come to me, and so we're in the middle of the negotiation. Patsy, meanwhile, asks rhetorically, who has debates on high school football nights? Everybody in politics. Everybody who doesn't want to take a risk. Thank you very much. Yeah. Not just football anyway. Uh, and Jim wants to know, any talk about Obama campaigning for Beto? I haven't seen or heard anything, but I can't imagine it would be a huge surprise. I don't think it would be even a big ask. I mean, you know, the question is, you know, if you're, if you're bringing somebody in, whether it's Trump or Obama or George Clooney, whatever you're doing, bringing into a race, you have to look at... How much does it excite the people on your side? How much does it excite the people on the other side? And if you bring an Obama or a Trump in, the advantage, obviously, is that those are very popular with, you know, this side or that side. The disadvantage is that they might get the other side all excited and up off the couch and voting. And to that point, we've seen reports that Ted Cruz wants Trump to campaign for him here. Not surprising in a state where Trump is pretty popular among Republicans, but to Ross's point, might energize some of the Beto supporters. His opponents, for sure. There was a yeah. funny moment. You know, somebody reported, I think it was uh, Jeremy Wallace in the Houston Chronicle reported that Cruz was asking Trump to come. And the Cruz campaign jumped in and said, no, 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 we're not asking. We'd love to have them here. We think they'll be here. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was a very funny moment. Not but an it's, ask. It's to this point where you sort of want all the positives of somebody and none of the negatives of somebody. And with somebody like Trump or Obama, frankly, in this state, that's, that's a nice bag. Yep. Uh, well, Emma, you had another story yesterday, uh, this one about an outgoing state lawmaker who had some tough words for Governor Abbott. Who was it and what did he say? So we reported in late June that Governor Abbott had made this kind of unusual move to state agencies saying, before you guys publish your rules, you know, and these can be important rules, anything from the management of fetal remains to environmental regulations, before you publish these rules for public comment, send them to me first. Uh, this was kind of an interesting move for a governor in a state like Texas, which is a traditionally weak executive. And we saw yesterday, so more than a month after we first reported this news, Byron Cook, an outgoing Republican chairman in the House. A Strauss lieutenant. A mm -hmm. Strauss lieutenant, a top Strauss lieutenant, mm -hmm. some would say, uh, had some harsh words for the governor. He said this is a potentially unconstitutional power grab. Um, and was sort of concerned about the implications of a move like this. So, Ross, how unusual is it for a governor to make a move like this? Have you seen this in your tenure? Yeah, I mean, governors, you know, Texas is, is you know, sort of classified as a weak governor state. The Constitution was written at a time when, in, in Texas history, when the governor was on the outs with the legislature, and so they wrote it as a weak governor state. And if you grade the states on, you know, this is a powerful governor with a cabinet, this is a weak governor. Texas is always at the bottom of those lists. So they're always trying to crawl out of that hole. And Rick, so, yeah. Rick, Rick Perry did it by kind of over 14 years as governor populating the agencies with former staffers. You look at the executive directors, general counsels, media people, 
in the agencies, and they were all Perry people, and he could talk to them that and way. And it seems like those, you know, when Perry had all those people, those people would probably quietly run stuff right. by mm-hmm. him ahead of time. Is the issue here that Abbott hasn't been around long enough to have all of his people in these agencies, so there are holdovers who are doing things he maybe wouldn't have done himself? A lot of those folks still phone home. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of them are now in the habit of calling the governor's office and saying, you know, you know, um, hey, can I do this? The rules thing is a little bit different because the agencies have always had, you know, they're appointed by the governor who cannot fire them and doesn't control their budgets. And he's now asking them, I want to see your rules before they go out. And they can constitutionally give him a middle finger for that and say, forget about it. We're not going to do that. Right. So they don't have to do this. He can't demand it. And they don't necessarily have to take his edits if if they do. But, you know, if nobody says anything, the chances are that these agencies aren't going to buck the governor and that they're going to do what he says. And this bleeds power away from the other potential overseers, the legislatures. So you're moving power that's now kind of invested over time in the House and the Senate over to the governor's office. And the question being, you know, that I would ask about, you know, others than Byron Cook is, are you guys going to let that go? What is so Byron Cook saying this? Does the governor care? Maybe not, because, you know, as we know, (laughs) Byron Cook isn't coming back in 2019. But I think it's likely to be representative. No one likes to have their power taken away from them, right? The legislature, the relevant House committees are invited to submit testimony on proposed rules. They, as Ross mentioned, set these agencies' budgets. So traditionally, they've had the most oversight over, you know, dozens of executive agencies that do really important work in Texas. No one wants to send that over to the governor's mansion. One of the interesting things that Cook pointed out was that, you know, all of this is going to go through presumably one person in the governor's office. And it's a volume of stuff. I mean, it's a it's a fire. Yeah, I mean, rules changes are constantly and happening for, for a government that wants to speed things up and and flatten things out. You know, this sounds like a bureaucratic bottleneck. Mm. I thought part of te- what Texas wanted, though, was to slow things down. I mean, I thought the whole point of this part-time legislature was, you know, so not as much legislation could pass and not as many things could change too well, quickly. N- not all of the rules that are proposed would make things tougher on regulated industries. Some of them would make things easier for regulated industries. If you're trying to wind things back and you want to do it quickly, uh, putting another bottleneck in the pipe doesn't make sense. Well, Ross, you had a column looking at uh, Governor Abbott's efforts to sort of grow his gubernatorial authority. Is this the only example or are there others? No, there's a couple of others. I mean, I think he's building on Perry's, you know, the marbling people into the agencies, getting your appointees in there, getting your appointees to hire people that are sympathetic to you. You know, that's an old gubernatorial trick. It was really weaponized successfully by Rick Perry. And I think Abbott's picking that up. You know, you have this rules thing where, you know, the longest serving attorney general in history wants his hand on administrative law in the state. That's not really surprising if he can get it. And it also follows by a couple of years, Abbott weighing in on gubernatorial vetoes and strengthening. This is a cat and mouse game that's been going on for ages between the legislature and a governor. They pass a a budget and try to insulate as much of it as possible from a governor's vetoes. He sort of breached their, their wall with the help of Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who stood with the governor instead of with the legislature and basically uh, gave away the store on that one. So he's, in, he's empowered himself, the Perry way in appointments, the, with the budget, and now he's trying to do the administrative law stuff. Is anybody going to speak out against it beyond Byron Cook? Haven't heard anyone yet. Not until he not until he gets into somebody into something that somebody really cares about. I don't know that they'll do it in theory, but if somebody really cares about issue X, then we'll have a fight. 
All right. Well, that's all the time we have this week. If you like listening to the TribCast, we hope you'll try our audio news brief, which shows up every morning on your Amazon Alexa smart speaker or podcast player. Thanks to Shiny Ribs, as always, for our music and to the Witty Museum, NRG Energy, and AARP Texas, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Ross, Marissa, Emma, and our producers, Bobby and Michael Ray, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Yes, how quickly are we putting the A through F ratings in the school explorer? How, um, all this stuff. Yeah. Yep, he must be back in town. I thought he was gone all week. I was hoping. You said I was hoping.